Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'm Trevor Page, and I'll be your moderator for today's session. So now I just have to make sure that it's loud enough in here. You know, last month we had a session about dying and the choice to do so with dignity. Today's session is about living, and the prescription is somewhat different. I have to say that having spent most of my working life in Africa and Asia, I was shocked when I heard on the CBC eye-opener, which wakes me up every morning, that there's an outbreak of measles in Lethbridge. I don't know why it is that we always make the news about, we always make bad news or news for the wrong reasons anyway. But we're fortunate today to have Lethbridge's busiest woman, Dr. Vivian Sutrop. And she is the South Zone Medical Officer of Health for the Alberta Health Services. I'm sure she'll tell us during her presentation the geographical area in southern Alberta that she's responsible for. Um, Dr. Satorp's talk today is immunization and vaccines and what are the benefits and the risks. Before inviting her to the podium, I must remind you that the cost of today's session is $11. Please put that into the little basket on the table in front of you, and please have somebody count it. We have some all sorts of people that come to our sessions, including the media. Uh, and inviting Dr. Satop to the podium... I would uh, advise you first that this session is being recorded and I'd ask you to switch off your cell phones. Dr. Sato. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak um, on behalf of Alberta Health Services and Public Health. Interesting, the follow-up of immunization to your presentation last month. So I have a lot of slides here. Actually, I didn't realize I had like 20, 25 minutes to speak. So I'm going to go through a lot of the introductory stuff is around what are vaccines. Um, I can share this presentation with you if that's of interest rather than focusing on those pieces because I think a lot of people here are probably aware of that. I'll focus a little bit more on... Oops. Oh, how do I get this thing moving forward? Sorry, can I just get some help to move this forward? Oh, there it goes. It's just slow to react. Okay, um, so I'm just going to focus a little bit on um, some of the, the basic things around vaccine, but just a high level. And then I want to focus, really, why do we always make the news here? Why do we have these vaccine-preventable illnesses? And why do we have children die? We had a child die of whooping cough in June 2012, mm -hmm. an infant, under a month. Why does that happen in a developed world? 
I've worked in developing nations, and we see that we saw that all the time. But we shouldn't expect to see that here. Why is Southern Alberta unique? So in, I will focus on that piece because I think that's probably of most interest to this group. And the cases I'll use is whooping cough, pertussis, and the current measles outbreak. So again, just a very few points. I'll, I'll go through these slides pretty quickly. But vaccines, vaccines protect you from disease. They contain bits of disease germs, um, again, in a very simplified way. And it triggers your own immune system to build antibodies and to build immunity. Some people will say that natural infection to measles is much better or to whooping cough is much better than uh, vaccine-induced. But there's risks. So yes, vaccines make our immune system stronger, and most of the vaccines are equal to having natural disease. Some of the vaccines we need annual immunization, such as influenza, you're probably very familiar with. Others we just need one or two doses for our life, and we have lifelong immunity. So again, the vaccines that we get, we don't get disease from. You hear lots of people saying, oh, I got the flu shot, and I got sick afterwards. I'm never getting it again. That's actually not correct. Flu is not even the, 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 the influenza vaccine that we give to most individuals is not a live virus vaccine. You can't get sick from it. There's lots of other respiratory viruses circulating right now, and during this time of year when we immunize, that are probably causing your illness. There are lots of naturopaths, chiropractors, et cetera, et cetera, and it's great to have them as part of a healthcare force, but there's some, a lot of mixed messaging here in southern Alberta from some of our alternative providers. Um, and so there's some special products you can have that are going to give you specific antibodies to measles, apparently, right now. That's quite interesting. Some drops your child can swallow. Um, or some special reflexology or something, and your children will be immune. So if you understand immunization, that doesn't really truly make a whole lot of sense. We know that vaccines have extensive testing before they're even licensed. Um, we have vaccines nowadays where there's multiple diseases contained in one vaccine, so that means less uh, uh, needles for an individual. There's less time, so we can actually immunize children more quickly uh, to have, give them some boost to their immunity rather than um, having multiple doses at diff uh, over a longer time period. So we have that more rapid protection. So again, vaccines are safe. They go through a rigorous testing process. Yes, there can be minor reaction, and yes, sometimes it can be serious uh, consequences. Um, very rarely is there somebody who can't get immunized. It's interesting, sometimes we have an entire uh, group of individuals in a, in a facility or somewhere, and everybody says, oh, we can't get immunized, I'm allergic. That, that really isn't necessarily true. So unless you have severe egg allergy, certain vaccines are... So if you have a severe allergy to eggs, certain vaccines are, are not indicated... If you had a very serious allergic reaction to a component of the vaccine, if you're extremely severely compromised, bone marrow transplant individuals, for example, we don't give measles vaccine to. Um, or if kids come in and they have a very high fever, we don't immunize them that date, but we immunize them later. So this slide just points out that there's very few contraindications to vaccine. So why don't people take vaccines for their children? It is an individual choice. There's lots of different ingredients, again, and for reasons, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but this is some of the worries, I think, by individuals. There's um, aluminum, or there's mercury, or there's, you know, there's all these different components, and I've heard all sorts of things. There's vomit and pus and all sorts of things that you hear, you read on Google, right? You research in Google, quote-unquote. So it's quite amazing how many myths are out there. 
So just another component of vaccination is not only before vaccines uh, are licensed, there's afterwards, there's a very uh, tight uh, adverse event reporting process. So there is a process whereby any reactions locally make it all the way up to World Health Organization and to individual drug companies. So if there's certain a lot that has more allergic reactions, for example, that, that can actually be identified quickly. So there, this, and this is uh, international, this very rigorous process. So why do we need vaccines if we have better hygiene and sanitation? We get this question a lot. So I think a num number of things to answer that question is, one, we have a lot of communities in southern Alberta that don't achieve herd immunity. And I'm going to focus on that, as I said earlier, uh, for the rest of the presentation. Um, so infants and unimmunized children are not protected by the herd. Sometimes you might have heard about herd me, but don't hurt me. So keep me along with the herd, but don't give my children immunization. But people are relying on the rest of individuals to yeah. be immunized. And really, truly, that herd immunity is calculated and really protects those very few who have a contraindication, a legitimate contraindication to vaccine. So adults can be carriers of disease as well. We see that in whooping cough. More and more adults, we realize, do not have lifelong immunity, even if you had whooping cough disease as a child. So in the most recent outbreaks, it's adults spreading it to the kids, and the kids get really sick. The adults don't get really sick. A lot of travel is happening, right? We are traveling much more than we did 20 years ago as a general population. Um, families are participating in increased community events and schools. There's more and more different private schools or niche charter schools, and a lot of heterogeneity between schools in immunization rates. Um, there's different mechanisms of disease transmission, and then also the risks of serious complications resulting from disease outweigh the risks uh, of the immunization. So again, immunizing in general is much less of a risk than the disease, getting the disease. And, but many people will argue that latter point. They say that, well, people die from a vaccine, they don't die from the disease. People don't see the diseases anymore. And if you've been in a developing country, you see these diseases daily. So now I'm going to focus a little bit on herd immunity. So we talk about this herd immunity, and it really comes back from animal industry. So it's in very simple terms, it's the protection of a population from the transmission of a vaccine-preventable illness through immunization of that herd. And different illnesses have a different target to ensure herd immunity. I think a lot of people don't know that. So let's say measles, we need 98% of a population immunized to protect the 2% who are vulnerable and may not be immunized yet. So the concept, it's important to understand some of these concepts, or actually have a number of assumptions. So it assumes that there's human-to-human -human transmission. Tetanus, you need a booster every 10 years, is ubiquitous. It's in the soil. The spores are in the soil. We can't eradicate that. We can't prevent human-to-human -human transmission because it's not transmitted from human-to-human. -human. People are exposed through dirty, dirty uh, wounds, for example. Another assumption is that there's random mixing of the population. And when we have unique population groups in southern Alberta that may not truly be randomly mixing at schools, at church, um, in, in even geographic communities. And I'll show that example with our whooping cough outbreak, why certain communities have these outbreaks more so than others do here, right here in southern Alberta. So that random mixing is very important. 
Um, obviously, the presence of non-human hosts. If we have influenza in turkeys and in bats or in birds, it's very difficult to know what is the herd immunity because we're not immunizing most of these carriers. Um, obviously, the vaccine efficacy, whooping cough vaccine, isn't as good as measles vaccine. Um, and obviously, it depends on which diseases are circulating. Another thing with herd immunity is based on a modeling approach, and there's always limitations and assumptions within that. So what about herd immunity here? So, again, within southern Alberta, and, and the area that south zone, sort of the area that I'm responsible for, spans is all the way Crow's Nest Pass up to Granham, Brooks, to Oyen, that whole sort of area, Medicine Hat and Brooks included. So it's very large, and the difference in immunization rate is quite stellar. And so um, within a community, it's usually quite similar, so quite homogeneous, or within a specific school. But between schools, there's vast differences. And between geographic communities, there's vast differences. And much more so in the Lethbridge area as compared to, let's say, Medicine Hat and Brooks. We have a very high density in a small geography yeah. of non-immunizing groups. These non-immunizing groups may actually go to certain schools, or right? And so we have not, again, that random mixing. And this is what leads to re regular vaccine-preventable outbreaks here in southern Alberta and primarily here in the southwest. So these are some examples of vaccine-preventable outbreaks that we've had recently. So measles, right now. Uh, we had whooping cough in 2012. We had it also in 2009. We had mumps in 2007, 2008. That was a very large outbreak. And then, again, whooping cough, whooping cough. In the literature, it will actually say that in areas where there are low immunization rates, every three to five years there will be a whooping cough outbreak. We are classical, epidemiological, and support all that literature. Measles in 1999 was in a small community of Oxhall Tabor area. 1997, we had a larger measles outbreak. Hundreds of individuals then. This was my issue. We've not had measles for 13 years. Why well, I was always very concerned since I started here five and a half years ago. Measles is going to come and we're going to be hit hard. So we need to start preparing now, like this is five years ago. Rubella, another one at risk in 1996 was the last outbreak. Rubella is a serious illness, especially for pregnant moms and getting congenital rubella syndrome. So this is a very serious illness when we have large uh, numbers who don't immunize. Polio, I don't know if any of you remember here, but polio was here 20 years ago. World Health Organization was here. It was all quite interesting. I wasn't here at the time, but apparently it was quite interesting. So I'll go through a little bit about whooping cough outbreak in 2009 here, and then I'll show you some maps as well of our immunization rates. So again, in the southwest, it's sort of that old Chinook geography. So this is Crow's Nest Pass, basically to Grassy Lake, Tabor area, um, and Granham down to the border. So this just gives an example of what that herd immunity, that target is at the population level. So usually by two years of age, children have had four doses of whooping cough-containing vaccine, so pertussis. And overall, in the southwest, we have 74% of children at two have, that, have received those doses. But if you look at the range, it's basically from 50 to 88%. So Fort McLeod is 49.7% of children have received whooping cough. The target is 97. Um, and there's some communities, so Lethbridge, where you have a larger denominator, larger number of children, um, it's a little bit higher. It's around 88%. 
So, and this even includes some of the small communities like Milk River, which has great immunization rates, and obviously much less children. Um, and so in the southeast, though, so Medicine Hat Brooks area, let's say Oyen, the overall rate is 86%, and it's much more similar. The range is not that broad. And this is why I'm not so concerned about measles outbreaks in the east, in Medicine Hat Brooks, which is also an area of my responsibility. It's right here, and specifically in the communities with low rates. So this is just the outbreak, and I want to use some of these graphs, and I'll move over, and hopefully my voice will project because I don't have a portable microphone. Um, is there a portable one? Oh, I can move it. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, so I'll just show you the example of herd immunity. This outbreak in 2009, I put it in some uh, graphs here, and it really brings home a lot of the points that I've been talking about and why we are currently at risk of these outbreaks. So if you can see here, this is again in 2009. The first case was in December 2008. And the last case was in the end of October 2009. So we had a 10-month-long outbreak of whooping cough. This is not uncommon. So you can see that the cases that are this uh, wine-red color are individuals not immunized. So it started in non-immunized individuals. The little yellow bar at the top Those are individuals not up to date. So they may have had only one dose, and they're supposed to have had five doses total, right? They may have had only had one dose of vaccine. So this is, again, primarily in individuals who have not been immunized. Um, there's a few who are immunized. So this kind of purpley color in the middle there, there's a few who are immunized. And we know that the vaccine is 100%. And I'll show you in the next couple slides who those individuals are. Not by name, of course, but uh, sort of their immunization status. So this slide shows that we have large outbreaks, long outbreaks, with quite a number of cases over, over a long time period. So there were 97 cases reported during that outbreak. Most of those were confirmed. We know that there's a lot of underreporting. So a lot of adults, they have cough, like this hacking cough for a number of months or weeks, and nobody even knows it's whooping cough. So they're actually shedding it, giving that to the little, to the younger kids who aren't uh, immune. So we know that if 97 is just the tip of the iceberg, there's probably hundreds more out there. Um, this was a school-based outbreak, and I'll prove that point in a moment. So again, 83% in this pie chart is not immunized, and uh, the 5% unknown are usually adults. They don't remember if they've had a vaccine in the past, and 12% were immunized. So this is a, a graph that shows whooping cough cases by age and immunization status. So if you look at the under one, and the, so the, the, the case numbers on the, on the y-axis on the left and on the bottom, it's the age group. So you can see that the majority of children were actually under seven years of age. And that's not rocket science. The outbreak prior to that in the same community was seven years prior. So the other kids have immunity. Um, also, we expect more individuals to bring children to physician offices or for to, to seek medical attention so we can actually take a lab test, right? The older kids have also much uh, less serious disease. So this is, again, data by school. So we talked about herd immunity. We talked about differences, the, the, the similarity within a school in all the grades, for example, and the difference between schools. So that some schools have very low immunization rates and most schools have good immunization rates. 
So this is, again, if you look at the schools, schools are coded here by different colors. They're not very, may not be so visible, but the colors I want you to pay attention to are these two colors. So you can see sort of that wineish red and the mauve color. They're continuing on throughout the 11 months. So the point here is that in the schools where there's no herd immunity, NA is the preschoolers in the families that attend school A. The there is no herd immunity in school A. There is ongoing transmission in school A over an 11-month period. The schools that have yellow and a green or a pink, they can be large schools with 300 children or 200 children, but there's only maybe one or two cases. We expect some vaccine breakthrough disease, some vaccine failures, if you will, but most children are not affected, yet they're all exposed. So this is herd immunity at a school level, but it's no different in a community level. So one other point is, so when somebody has exposed to whooping cough, some physicians will prescribe antibiotics. There's a case of whooping cough in a household, take an antibiotic. Take an antibiotic for 10 days. But in actual fact, so one kid in the house, nobody else gets sick in the household. But the kids are going to go back into school and get exposed again. You can't be on antibiotics for 10 months. But some people are choosing that is less of a risk to be on antibiotics for 10 months, their children, as opposed to a dose of vaccine. We know all about antibiotic resistance and in humans, et cetera, and, and resistant organisms and all those kinds of things. So, again, people make those individual choices, but they're just interesting choices, and, and it, it is an individual choice, and I believe that should be so. And, again, the risk assessment, risk-benefit, so people find that risk may be less to be on a reasonably strong antibiotic, which is, puts a lot of selection pressure on resistant organisms, which we use for whooping cough, versus taking a dose of vaccine. So again, here's the school again, the case numbers by school and the immunization status. So the NA on the left bottom, uh, bottom left, and the A, so preschoolers is NA, A is uh, school. You can see that the number of cases immunized in those schools are very little. Some have not been up to date. So the yellow is those who've had maybe one or two doses and they should have had four or five. You can see in the schools, C through H, there's very few cases and they're all immunized. And who are these immunized children? Uh, oh, sorry. Some of these immunized children are actually the, the five-year-olds who haven't had their booster dose or the 13, 14-year-olds who need their booster at 14. So, again, we have an immunization schedule for a reason. It's based on the literature. It's based on when the antibody levels decrease so that you don't have that same level of protection. So this, and I don't know why this slide comes out. It looks fine on my computer, but... I've seen this before and it all blacked out. But I can tell you the towns. Actually, I'll just let me just grab my notes here. And so the towns here, this is by town. And we talked about this by school. But we know that schools have large catchment areas. And people can be on a bus for an hour. So the epicenter, if you will, is a school. Because that's where kitties all share these germs. And then they go into their communities and spread in the communities. And that's kind of unique. We don't have that in other places. Even when I compare it to other jurisdictions or in other countries, people aren't traveling those vast distances just to go to school. So some of the communities, let me just pull the map out so I'm not fibbing here who the, which the communities are. But you can see the communities with our low immunization rates. Fort McLeod. Picture View. Coaldale. Nobleford. Actually, this is Nobleford, Picture View. 
The tallest one there is Coaldale, or Fort McLeod, I should say. Where's Coaldale in here? Coaldale is the first one over here. Coaldale, Fort McLeod, Noble Frisk, and Chicken. So I'll show you a map later. That's where our low immunization rates are. I'll also tell you later that that's where we have our measles cases. It's not rocket science. That's where we have low immunization rates. And there's no herd immunity, either in the community or in the schools. But also in the schools that children attend. Because again, most of these outbreaks are being transmitted through schools. School desks of teachers are apparently more germy and disgusting than most places in doctors' offices, which is kind of scary. <laughs> so that was whooping cough, but it just brought home the pieces of herd immunity, etc. So I'll just talk a little bit about measles, but those core concepts apply here as well. So measles is a virus. Humans are the only host. Uh, so again, we can see if we can eradicate. It's sort of the disease after polio to be eradicated from the earth. We're not doing a very good job at it. Um, it's one of the most highly infectious diseases that we know. Um, and you need a high herd immunity rate of 98%. 30% of individuals can have a complication. That can be ear infection, pneumonias, so those can be treated with antibiotics. But you can have serious complications, such as encephalitis or sort of infection of the brain. And this can also cause blindness and deafness. In fact, a lot of new immigrants coming to Canada or refugees here in Lethbridge, when they are deaf, they weren't born deaf. They don't have children who are deaf. They've had a viral infection of rubella or measles as a child. Death in the developed world, still 1 to 2,000 die in the world um, in, uh, with measles. Um, in the developed world. Um, and then there's a very strange complication which we'll get, uh, get at, but this is a subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. It basically is ongoing chronic infection of the brain, and if kids get measles usually under two years of age, and then tw uh, 10 to 20 years later, they end up being fully mentally and physically needing assistance wow. and in care. So I'm not going to go into too many de details. It's very highly contagious, and it's in the air. If I have measles, everybody here is exposed. If I leave the room for two hours later, you're still breathing in my measles germs. Okay, it's airborne. So washing your hands doesn't really help. Right? So washing hands with influenza on doorknobs and norovirus, this thing that's around town now that causes diarrhea and vomiting, it can last for seven days on a doorknob. This stuff is in the air. Why it's so contagious? And people are contagious before they even have symptoms. So the first symptoms are a runny nose and a sore throat. How many viruses that circulate at this time of year cause a runny nose? Lots. And so we don't even know who has measles. That's why it's so incredibly uh, contagious. There's no treatment. It's supportive only. And the prevention is vaccine. So one dose of vaccine, which we give usually at one year of age, is 95% protective. And two doses, about 99% protective. Nothing is 100% these days, right? I mean, the only certainty in life is death. So... Anyways, so um, just a little bit of impact of measles immunization in the world. So before, the, uh, before there was a vaccine, it was estimated there were 100 million cases annually worldwide with 6 million deaths. And every two to four years, we talked about three to five years whooping cough, well, every three to five years would be measles outbreaks. The first licensed vaccine was in 1963. In Alberta, it was introduced in '66. Now, worldwide, these are the numbers. You can see as there's more vaccine reaching the developing children in the developing nations, we see that decrease. But there are still hundreds of children dying of measles annually in the world. And in fact, in the Netherlands outbreak, there was a child who died last week. 
This is the outbreak in Quebec. It was 11 months long. You can see that there. So this is what I'm kind of expecting will be happening here. Hopefully not 11 months. I'm expecting a couple months. This is our immunization rate. So measles vaccine. Um, you can see the red zone here. County Lethbridge, Fort McLeod, Coaldale, Picture View areas. So that, again, there's some areas in the north. Again, smaller denominators, different reasons for not immunizing. But it's a high density in a small area. Um, and so, again, I was very worried that we can now have 16 or 17 years of children that are not immune. It showed before the last outbreak was in 97. So we've got a large group of non-immunized individuals, and even some beyond that, um, different age groups. Um, in the Netherlands, there's been over 2,000 cases. The last outbreak in the Netherlands was exactly the same time and the same strain as we had our last outbreak in 97 here. So the modeling I've done in projecting who's going to be ill and how many beds we need, et cetera, is based on the Netherlands because it's similar communities and, um, again, similar demographic. Same strain that we have here is in the Netherlands. It's also been imported to first to Abbotsford and also to southwestern Ontario where we have similar communities. Um, again, right now we have 19 confirmed cases. We know there's others out there. And, and again, we've got multiple families out in, qu in quarantine and really... We've done a lot of steps in order to prevent transmission in healthcare facilities and family physician offices, even in the community. And now, again, you've heard me on the media probably saying now everybody is role, A, to immunize, and B, if you, right, if you're sick, stay home, and if you're not immunizing, quarantine, if you've been exposed. Um, so just a slide, we've done a lot of work on this, even in August, meeting with church leaders and school uh, superintendents to say, you know, if measles comes, it's going to come. I just don't know when. And these are things you need to have sort of maybe think about and put into place. And right now we have a bunch of strategies. So we have strategies within our healthcare system, working with uh, a hotline. There's a mobile team that can go into people's homes to assess cases that don't need admission um, and support individuals at home. There's also this fabulous tent. I don't know how many of you have seen the portable isolation containment system, the PIX tent outside of the hospital. Here's a pictures. You probably have seen those big cement blocks, so it doesn't blow away. Um, this is inside, so we got half the beds are pediatric beds. This, the other side is uh, adult beds. So just some pictures here. But this is because measles is airborne, and we need very specific air handling units to not expose other individuals. The worst thing we want is a measles case on pediatrics floor where we don't have appropriate air handling. So part of our planning in September was also to create those negative pressure rooms at the hospital, which were not there prior. So all that stuff has been done prior, again, to mitigate spread of disease. So that's my summary. Just some examples, local examples, but they really hit home to why are we always in the media with these vaccine preventable illnesses.